0: Uh, Good morning and welcome to this morning's session. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Christopher Warren and I'm the Federal Secretary of the Media, Entertainment and Arts Alliance, who've been the proud trustees of the Walkley Foundation for Excellence in Journalism since 1956. Uh, On behalf of the Foundation, I'm very pleased to introduce today's session on Courage, Persistence and Investigative Journalism. The Walkley Foundation promotes excellence and innovation in Australian journalism through a year-round program of professional development, events and advocacy. The Walkley Awards program has more than 30 categories across all media platforms and to win a Walkley, as all the members of our panel, uh, other than myself, uh, have done, uh, is recognised as the pinnacle of Australian journalistic achievement. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land uh, and I suppose the water that we're meeting on today, uh, the uh, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and all Elders past and present. Now uh, threats, intimidation and accusations of madness are too often all in the day's work for our panel of investigative journalists. Uh, each of them have spent months or even years shining light on injustice and corruption. Uh, they've exposed grand- groundbreaking stories, would otherwise have gone untold and given voice to stories that would otherwise have been unheard. Uh, And today we're going to talk about the process by which they go through some of their most memorable investigation and the events they unfolded. So will you please join in welcoming our panel today, uh, beginning on my uh, right, uh, Joanne McCarthy. Uh, Joanne was born and raised in Gosford, the eldest of 11 children. Uh, She attended Catholic primary and high schools and completed her HSC at a Gosford public high school. In 2013, that is last year, she won the Gold Walkley Award, the Graham Perkin Award as Australian Journalist of the Year and the New South Wales Gold Kennedy Award for her work on child sexual abuse within institutions including the Catholic and Anglican Churches and the Salvation Army, which led directly to the Royal Commission into Institutional Responses to Child Abuse. Please welcome Joanne. On my immediate left is Trevor Borman, who is a producer and reporter for Foreign Correspondent at the ABC. Uh, Before that he was the Middle East Correspondent for the ABC, covering the Iraq Wars in 1991 and 2003, and more recently he's been the network editor of news. In 2013, his investigation into the mysterious Prisoner X won him and team member Vivian Altman not one, but two Walkley Awards for Best Investigative Journalism and Best TV Weekly Current Affairs. Will you please welcome Sarah? (laughs) Uh, And finally, uh, at the end of the uh, table, Sarah Ferguson. Uh, Sarah uh, started her reporting career as a sleepy reviewer of very fringe theatre. But an early career in arts journalism ended with the warning from documentary producers that she wouldn't get on on in Current Affairs because current affairs journalists lacked all forms of common decency.
1: (laughs) Uh,
0: She's worked for British, French and US broadcasters while living in France and the United States before moving to Australia, and in Australia she's worked as a researcher, producer and reporter for SBS, Channel 9, uh, and until recently the ABC's Four Corners. She's won multiple Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley Award in 2011 for her investigation into the live cattle trade, and she's also won four Logies, the Queensland Literary Award and the George Munster Award, and she's currently presenting 7.30 reports. Will you please welcome Sarah <laughs> So this is a terrific panel. These are three of the best people you're ever going to find out anything about investigative uh, journalism from. And we're going to be talking a bit about uh, the process, how they came to do their stories and using their stories as an illustration of that, I hope. Uh, Can I start perhaps with you, uh, Joanne? How did you get into this uh, story in the first place?
1: Um, I got into it just with a phone call from from a man who was a victim of a priest. So, as the introduction said, my background in terms of being raised Catholic was... You know, I knew as much about the Catholic Church, I suppose, as most people on this issue, which is, you know, the Church has done, appears to have done some dodgy things in, in terms of its pedophile priests. But I certainly wasn't looking at it as an issue. Um, this man rang me because he wanted to know why no media had ever reported that a, a pedophile priest by the name of John Denham had been convicted um, in the year 2000. And to this day, in fact, I must ask him, why did he bring me? I don't know. Um, but I said I'd check and make sure and uh, correct the record if that was the case. And, and it turned out that it was. So I was just doing what a journalist does, which is, you know, the truth about a particular person wasn't there. So um, that article planted a seed um, because in the end... There are now 64 victims of John Denham. There's at least 10 suicides attached to him. He's due to be sentenced again on another round of uh, convictions and the Catholic Church so far has paid out more than $10 million in compensation to his victims. Um, That seed led to people talking about the issue in the Hunter region and um, going to police speaking more to the media. So that that started in June 2006, and because this is such a a big, complex area, as we're now seeing with the Royal Commission, it it was like peeling an onion. And for... I was a journalist simply putting on the record, correcting the record about what we knew about the Catholic Church first and then other institutions, and then that broadened out to, well why are so many people coming forward? It it just basically was a step-by-step process. But at at a certain point along the way, because there were so many holes opening up, um, by the end of 2007, I definitely was starting to stray from being a journalist to to being an advocate. And um, that that was the end of 2007. So by 2012, I, I... felt almost uniquely placed to be able to write in in the middle of that year, there will be a Royal Commission because there must be, um, because the the holds that that led to so many appalling injustices were just gaping obvious, and someone needed to say that.
0: But in 2006, do you think, because you worked on a regional paper that was embedded in the community, was one of the reasons they felt able to come out? Definitely.
1: I... um, It sounds weird, but I actually wrote columns, and still do, um, where I talked about just normal things. And I think that was one of the key parts of this for people coming forward. Um, I was writing about my family. I was making it obvious that I was, you know, a normal person and not just that monolith, the media. On this issue, uh, one of the big issues, in fact, the issue, is trust and... um, for a lot of victims, trust is the thing that goes when they're abused, sexually abused as children. And so to trust, for many of them, is, is that almost insurmountable barrier. And I think because I was a person, that was why they spoke. And then, um, yeah, it was, and, and also the Hunter being a discreet region, I think that was a big part of it as well. I had a defined region to talk about. And in other parts of Australia, Victoria being the most obvious example, there were defined regions where the media played a vital role in terms of breaking the secrecy. And so what we've had is defined regions in Australia. The Salvation Army story, for example, is a South Australian story in terms of where that really came out. Um, so it was a huge part of it, and being close to the ground. Um, so in the end, you became sort of a spokesperson for a group of people. And, uh, and you could talk about where the gaps were within your region, but then it became fairly obvious that that was replicated in other areas.
0: Um, I suppose your story, Trevor, was the reverse. It was a big global story, wasn't it? So why did they bring
2: it to you? Um, I found myself in Israel a couple of years ago doing a story for the Foreign Correspondent Program on uh, Israel's attempt to subvert Iran's nuclear program, and I guess I'd, I'd done quite a few espionage-themed stories in the Middle East in previous years, um, and it was a, an underground garage moment. In, in journalism, we often talk in those terms. It's... Um, you know, all the president's men and uh, deep throat uh, confronts Bob Woodward and gives him this gem of information that leads to Watergate. Um, It was a bit like that for me, except it wasn't an underground uh, car park. It was dark and dingy. But um, these things don't happen by coincidence. Uh, He knew me and my work, and I guess he trusted me to give me this information. Uh, But he pulled me aside and he said, uh, there is an extraordinary story that cannot be told in Israel. Uh, there is this Australian Jewish man who uh, moved to Israel, who was recruited by Mossad. Uh, Something terrible happened. I don't know what. Uh, He was arrested uh, in great security and secrecy. Uh, He was locked in an isolation cell. He died in prison. And there's a cover-up that goes all the way to the Prime Minister's office. And his name is Ben Alon. Uh, So that was the gem of information. That was the nugget of information. The last thing he said was, uh, and um, if this is ever attributed to me, they'll shut me down. And if you try and pursue this story, they'll shut you down as well. Uh, And and I I pondered that, um, you know, the most feared and revered spy agency in the world, Mossad. what do they do when they shut people down? And I I thought of... um, (laughs) I thought of uh, the Palestinian arms dealer in 2010 in Dubai They'd been smothered by a pillow after being injected with a a nerve agent. And I thought of the kind of creative way that uh, the Mossad um, dispatched the uh, terrorists after the Munich Massacre. Uh, And I thought, well, you know, this is going to be interesting. But um, (laughs) in in terms of courage, and I know that's a a theme of this, and in terms of fears, you know, Mossad didn't worry me too much. The concerns I had... I had two concerns... The first was that, for some reason, I could never get the story up, that my journey to unravel the story would never succeed. And the biggest worry, and, you know, I lost sleep over this, the biggest worry was that someone else would beat me to the story, that I'd get to the story. <laughs> um, so... But, but, you know, it was a journey that lasted a year. And, basically, the challenge for us uh, was to um, find out who this guy was. And we went to Melbourne, and very quickly we found out that Ben-Alon... No-one knew who Ben-Alon was, but there was a Ben-Zygia, same age, died on the same date. Uh, there was a funeral. No-one asked questions of his family out of respect for them. It seemed that he suicided in Israel, and we had to establish, basically, <coughs> that Ben-Alon was ben Ziggier. Uh, Once we knew that he was ben Ziggy, that meant that he was this this prisoner ex, this guy who disappeared in Israel. That was the challenge, and and that was what we did.
0: When when they first came to you, did you trusted your source enough that you believed the story from the beginning?
2: Yeah, I did. It's strange in Israel that... I mean, every second person has worked in intelligence. Um, (laughs) You know, Israel, of course, has a people's army. Many Israelis believe that the very state is under perpetual threat of annihilation. There's an obligation for everyone to serve in the army. Everyone serves in the army. Many people uh, serve in various branches of, uh, of intelligence agencies. So the places are washed with analysts and, and experts in this area. And um, there are people called Mossad mules, when Mossad wants something out there in the public sphere or wants to spin something that uh, could be misinformation. Uh, they approach people like me, and my job is to sort out <laughs> what's um, disinformation and, and what could be truthful.
0: Mm. Um, and Sarah, you've been doing a lot of work on people smugglers. Mm-hmm. Uh, why did you get into that? What's, what was the attraction to that?
3: It was such a big issue. When we started doing stories on people smuggling, it was such a big issue in Australia, but one of the areas that hadn't been looked at was the, the role of the... Uh, the issue of boat people had become enormous in Australia, but not so much the uh, who the smugglers were, so we started um, on – actually, it was, a, it was funny because I went to Indonesia from Four Corners to do a story about, um, about someone who was trying to get to Australia by boat. This was the first of a series of three stories that we did. And I, I'd actually forgotten for a moment there how it started, and this is, this is it. We went to Indonesia to find this young man who'd agreed to um, film his journey to Australia, set off, it's always a big deal to get a commitment to do an overseas story at the ABC, it has to go through a lot of layers of approval for the money and so on. And we took off to Indonesia and we went to meet the young man and we spent a week with him and we got prepared and we were all ready to go. And then he decided not to do it. He would actually had, five, had had five attempts to reach Australia, this was to be his sixth. He'd been caught and put in prison a number of times and shot out by the Indonesian police on the water. And he just decided that he couldn't do it. So we were in Indonesia, there, myself and a producer, um, committed with a a story on in six or seven weeks' time in Australia and no story at all. So we went to see... um, This is a a very usually random event, but we went to see one... We had one other contact, and we went to see this particular Iraqi man... And he, the first thing he said to me was, you know that there's a lot of people smugglers living in Australia. And I said, well, I just don't think that can be true because uh, although there were starting to be a lot of people arriving, I didn't think it was possible that smugglers could have got through the system, could have been the ASIO checks and the AFP checks on Christmas Island. And he described the particular smugglers who were living here. Now, there's some, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a fraud issue, smuggling, but there are some particular individuals who have taken uh, egregious advantage of asylum seekers by putting them on particularly bad, poorly equipped boats, taking their money. Um, those boats have sunk, then gone around and collected the rest of the money, the rest of the payment from their families, knowing that the relatives were, were dead. So there's a particularly nasty group of, of criminals at the centre of people smuggling in, in Indonesia. And he told me that these people, had a number of them, had started moving their operations to Australia, and I didn't believe him. Um, that's how it started, and I was wrong. He was right, and it, we, we found them in the end. But it, it's actually one of those stories that began as something else. It's quite, a, it, it can happen, but not usually when you've paid the money and gone overseas and you're sitting there worrying about <laughs> producing a story in six weeks' time. So that's how that one started.
0: And how did you then take it to the next level? How were you, how were you able to break through? And
3: Well, it was... It was difficult because I don't speak Arabic and I'm in Indonesia and we're trying to um, penetrate what is a, obviously a, a criminal enterprise at that level. So we we got a number of Iraqis who were living in Indonesia at the time themselves trying to get on boats who, share, who shared the view that these particular people were taking advantage of, of asylum seekers in Indonesia themselves. These weren't the kind of small operators who do help people out. These were the people who were who were just making money out of the situation and with them we went to meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting and Trevor and Joanne know all about this, this, this is the onion that uh, Joanne was referring to before and the, exactly the process that Trevor went through, one person to another person to another person to another person until we got closer and closer to the event itself and were able to put someone in a meeting with a smuggler with cameras and went from there.
0: And- well, there are many stages, of, as you're unpeeling that onion, where you think, well, we're just not going to get there, we're just not going to get to it.
3: Yes. I, uh, over the years, I'm, I'm now more... In those terrible moments when you wake up in the morning and you think, oh, it's, I've only got a few weeks to go to have this story on air, there's a broadcast date, um, and at Four Corners, you don't really have much of a choice. There's no, You can't say, I want another two or three weeks because the programme has to be on. So you can have terrible... Usually, for me, it's first thing in the morning. I sleep really well... And then I wake up very early in the morning with a slight that feeling in your gut of, it's, we're not going to make it. You just, it's that moment where you have to remain <laughs> supremely calm and have confidence in the thing that's driving you in the first place, which is, if you have decided that this is a story, it's the desire for the truth mm-hmm. that keeps you going through those moments. You know, that you're, you're, you know there's a truth you need to find. There's no possibility of turning back, not just because of the broadcast, but because <coughs> of that driving desire to have that truth told.
0: Mm. And you, your, your started off similarly with just an initial breakthrough. Uh, did that mean that then more and more people started to come to you, or did you go, have to then go out and find them? Or was it a bit of both? Uh,
1: at first, there was going out and finding them, definitely. Um, and the interesting thing was they were all there, and they spoke. And um, and that is the interesting thing about this particular matter, child sexual abuse in institutions, because. I was finding people were talking to me, giving me names um, when the police started investigating in the Hunter. You're given names and that's when I think in my head I started thinking if the Catholic Church had wanted to find these people it is so easy. It really is so easy. And Sarah is right that idea about just getting the truth on the record and One thing, this is probably veering off a little bit, but but what I found fairly early in the piece is that one of the biggest difficulties on this matter is that we have perceived views about institutions, about churches. And one of the biggest issues was just getting past people's disbelief um, when it came to the point of saying, these things happened. Um, We should be doing something about it. Something is not right here. We are failing these people. Um, there was and it, the easiest way to explain it. There was just a range of excuses. But it's the church. But they do so much good work. But they, you know, there were all these but but buts. And and I kept getting back to, but these are crimes. Churches should not be committing crimes. We should not be allowing that.
0: Uh, was that a moment for you too, where you went from, it's just just a, a group. I mean, everyone. As you said earlier, there's always been an assumption that there was a some yep. pedophile priests, but, yep. is, but is that systemic and part of the system? When did you make that realisation that, no, hang on a moment, this really is systemic?
1: There were probably a few key points. The first was in uh, at the end of 2007 um, when I had uh, transcripts uh, of interviews with um, clergy um, in relation to a particular priest, uh, Vince Ryan, who's a pedophile priest who's targets were little boys aged between 5 and 12, um, jailed. Uh, but the the police had wanted to charge him, uh, charge uh, another senior clergy um, with concealing. Um, when I read the transcript uh, of an interview with that priest, and, and he just, it was a really appalling moment. This man knew, and he allowed this priest to commit appalling crimes against little boys for another 20 years. That was a key moment. The papal apology, the niggardly, ghastly papal apology and all of the stuff in 2008 and all of the stuff that swirled around that, um, that the Pope was prepared to have a go at um, the perpetrators, but not a word about the systemic issues, not a word about his responsibilities, Uh, And then in 2010, probably the key moment for me was when I had a document in front of me that I took to the police and it was a document that was written by a bishop um, that was then countersigned by another bishop um, in a process that involved two senior Australian clergy who are still senior Australian clergy about getting rid of a priest who'd been, by the name of Dennis McElinden, who'd, who'd been an abuser of children for more than four decades, and his particular group was little girls aged between four and twelve. And in the, in the letter that the bishop wrote to this priest to try and get rid of him secretly, he, he used the phrase, your good name will be protected by the confidential nature of this process. Now that seared into my brain because there is the very definition of a cover-up. So that... And that was, what, April 2010.
0: Often when there's an institutional cover-up, there are people within the institution who then leak information. Did you find that, or was almost all your information coming from victims or police investigators?
1: Certainly there were people within the church who um, (coughs) assisted. There, There is absolutely no doubt that a lot of Catholics, a lot of people who remain Catholics, who are horrified by what the church has done, have provided assistance. There were people who left the church who provided assistance. Um, But by and large, the the biggest group that's been of assistance have been the victims and their families who, and you only have to see some of the people who've given evidence at the Royal Commission to recognise how extraordinarily courageous and tenacious those people have been. And, and I think that became apparent to me you know very early in the piece there was a church that was moralizing <coughs> telling the rest of us how to live and yet they weren't upholding their own standards in any way shape or form and the people who really were showing decency honesty goodwill generosity in the face of appalling you know up against the church trying to get some justice they were the victims and their family so it it was pretty easy for me to work out which side I wanted to be on. And in the end, you know, I, I gave up any idea of objectivity fairly early in the piece in terms of the way... you, I, I mean, I, I became an advocate behind the scenes and, and I don't make any apologies for that now at this point. Although it, it was... I think the biggest struggle that I had was working out how to remain a journalist on an issue that I was so involved with in the end that that it, it was really, really difficult.
0: Uh, Trevor, when you were know doing your story, you obviously depended a lot on... Well, I'm assuming it would have depended a lot on information about the security establishment in Israel. To what extent were you able to get information from them, or were your sources all... I mean, I don't want you to reveal your sources, obviously. Um, outside the process, or do you find that within, even within the, the infrastructure, the security infrastructure, there are people here to talk to you?
2: There are only a couple of um, people within the prison service that actually knew that this man was secretly jailed. Uh, the, the problem was that there were these stifling court gag orders prohibiting any journalist to go anywhere near the story. Not too many journalists knew of the, this morsel of information anyway, that there was this prisoner ex tucked away in prison. Not too many knew about it, but if they did, they couldn't go anywhere with it because of this gag order that was in itself a secret. So, you know, it was pretty tough to do anything in Israel. We kind of had to backtrack and find out about this guy and his story, his life in Melbourne. And um, very quickly, um, speaking to the people in the community in Melbourne, we heard rumours that, you know, everyone seemed to suspect, and have heard the rumours that Ben Zigier worked for Mossad. Now, that's not good if you work as a spy for um, the community to, to suspect that. So, um, he, he was loose-lipped, and that really supported uh, everything we were to discover, that this guy was basically um, a hopeless, hapless spy, the master of his own downfall, in a sense. But the difficulty is you've got such sensitive information, but... In order to investigate, you've got to give some of that out. And that imperils your investigation and it makes it more fragile because you can't ask people things without giving little bits away. Um, But um, we just had to be tight, and it it took 12 months for us to do anything. And and I remember urging my executive producer, I used to say to him, look, we've got a little bit, let's do it as an online piece. Let's do it as a 7pm news story. I got pretty wobbly at the knees, uh, but he said, well, no, it's, uh, let's do it as a half-hour foreign correspondent. Now, of course, there wasn't much television involved, but eventually, you know, we, we got something together. But, you know, even within the unit, and foreign correspondence pretty tight, um, we firewalled everyone in our unit from this story. There was myself, the executive producer, uh, the producer who was working with me, uh, my wife, and that was about it. We had to keep really tight of it.
0: And with that information, there must have been times when you said, you were worried, if I, well, if I tell this, this little bit of the story to someone else, there's only one person that could have come from kind of discussion. So how do you manage that?
2: It's very strategic, and you have to choose your time. You have to really consider the timing. We felt obliged, and this was, this was a natural course of the investigation, to approach the family. Um, I did... It was pure coincidence. We were actually filming at the gravesite in Melbourne... I turned around and Ben's parents were there at the gravesite. And I, I thought, well, I have to speak to them at some stage. Uh, this is as good as opportunity as anything. And um, I approached them and I introduced myself. And I saw the colour drain from their face. Uh, it was like I tapped them on the shoulder and said, I'm sorry, but, but your son's dead. Because they realised from that point their secret and Mossad's secret and Israel's state secret was no longer a secret. Uh, So a lot of it is coincidence, and um, sometimes the failures are quite illuminating. Uh, There came a point where we thought, OK, we've got to to kind of show our cards to DFAT, so I put in a Freedom of Information request asking uh, what, um, you know, diplomats knew about Ben Ziggier, also known as Ben-Alon, his arrest and his uh, incarceration and his death... in in Israeli prison. And a few weeks later, I got this knockback saying, oh, we can't tell you anything out of privacy reasons, whatever. Uh, But they said, "Um, we we can't tell you anything about the case of Mr. Allen. I thought, this is bizarre. I'm requesting information on Ben Alon, also known as Ben Ziggier, and you're telling me you can't give anything away about Mr. Allen? Uh, And I called the case officer and he said, it's kind of weird, isn't it? Because they didn't know the secret, even." Uh, DFAT. And it kind of validated the theory that we had which was that Mossad was recruiting Australian dual citizens, Australian Jews, uh, encouraging them to change their names from Hebrew names uh, to Anglo names and then with their new Australian passports and their Australian accents, they could um, tour the world spying for Mossad. The with, with
0: your stories on people smuggling you're obviously dealing with a criminal conspiracy, really. Um, did you ever find, that people were, were sometimes w- wanting to talk to you as a... to get something back, particularly to get Australian residency back, or was there a...
3: It was always implicit, so people would... Um, no matter how many times I said, um, you, "You, if you're going to share this information with me, you must understand that there is nothing in return. Um, the, the problem was they they thought that I was just saying that and that that on another level I would be able to do something. Also because most of the people I was dealing with had no concept of what the ABC is um, and they thought that it was a government organisation. And again, that's a very difficult concept to, to understand if you're from Afghanistan or Pakistan or Iraq that there is no connection between us and the government. In fact, it's really the opposite. And so... (laughs) While while I would be very specific about it, they'd always come... You know, when I was meeting people in in Australia, once we were on the hunt for the people here, we'd moved from Indonesia to move the investigation to Australia, um, they'd always bring their um, refugee documents with them. And, again, I would have to say, look you know, the the best thing I can do to you is give you the name of a lawyer. That's the most I can do, and you must... There is no quid pro quo for you here, and they'd look at me and go... "Mm -hmm." That's very difficult, because while that doubt remained, um, that very complicated for me, because there was... While that doubt remained, I had to be very, very careful about how we proceeded. So it was an ethically murky area because it was never completely expunged that they thought that somehow or other there might be a result for them.
0: So you had to be very careful not to give a Tony Abbott-style wink while you were talking <laughs> to him. No,
3: we
1: uh,
0: the, uh, How helpful were the... To what extent, though, uh, when you were dealing with the story, was this already known to the Australian authorities, the poli- Federal Police or the Department of Immigration, and were they able to help at all, or were they... <laughs>
3: <laughs> one, of, one of the stories after, the, the, there was a story we did about a people smuggler called Captain Emad who was living in Canberra. And one of the, uh, these stories tend to have very long tales. We spend a lot of time dealing with them afterwards. It's clearly the case for my two colleagues here. Um, one of the, somebody wrote an article. The one that annoyed me the most was someone who said, well, what's so good about this? It was just a great big dump from the AFP. And we got no help from anyone at all. So I knew that the AFP were looking for them, but um, there was no interest on the part of any organisation in helping mm. us at all, mm. um, and at no point then nor since.
0: Which will be a shock to everyone who knows how open the Department of Immigration is when they're, <laughs> dealing with, when they're dealing with journalists.
3: No, the Department of Immigration was proper, I have to mm. say that. There was nothing wrong with the way that they dealt with us. It's just that they weren't... They weren't, they weren't of course, interested in helping us demonstrate that... Um, very organised people smugglers had settled in Victoria and New South Wales and the AFP for their part didn't want us to find out things that they couldn't find out so it was, it was, a, it, it was well, no help. Which is a bit of a
0: surprise because there has been this uh, I suppose you'll call this cultural debate within Australia about whether people smugglers are the most evil people on earth or mm-hmm. modern day Oscar mm-hmm. Schindlers so, mm-hmm. but you never felt that they realised might be in their interest to Feed the, 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 the evil narrative.
3: It's just the way the... Uh, I think it's just the way the AFP works, that, um, that from time to time they will share information with journalists. I've always found it a very challenging area because it's not our job to aid the police at any time. Um, so if you go down the path of having a relationship with them, you have to be extremely careful. It's a little bit... It's a lesser version of, of Trevor dealing with Mossad because um, they want something in return... That they're, they're not going to help you, so you've got to be very conscious of when that, if you're going to go down that path of working with the police, and I'm not talking about state police, because people can have relationships with people in pubs and so on, and have done for years, which is slightly different, but with a federal organisation, you, you have to be very aware of what's coming if you're going to open that relationship. I didn't mind not having any, any particular dealings with them. We checked a couple of facts with them, that's about it, but it's not a, it's not a relationship I'm comfortable with.
0: Mm. Uh, whereas you obviously have to deal with the police a lot and co- almost became an ally of the police in, in... ..or some of the police, at least. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Complicated. Um, and I definitely agree with Sarah. It's it's not something that you walk into happily. Um, and, and and it's certainly not easy. Um, I, I'm feeling slightly constrained because the, the Special Commission of Inquiry is about to report um, on <coughs> um, uh, aspects of... Uh, my relationship with a particular police officer, Peter Fox Um, I think probably the important important point to make here is that the police started investigating this matter really in the Hunter after the media got involved and um, it is really really difficult to again it's one of those areas where it's difficult to work out where, where do you stop as a journalist, given the fact that I'm contacted all the time by victims of child sexual abuse. They contact me first because they they want a contact within the police and I had to work out how to negotiate that with the police. By the same token, it's fairly obvious from a lot of the evidence given at the, um, the Commission of Inquiry that um, I'm not the best friend of a lot of police in, uh, in the Hunter region. So simply because um, in 2010 when I took the documents to them, I had an expectation that the police would look seriously not just at the perpetrators of child sexual abuse but at the system that supported those perpetrators. Um, We don't do those kind of investigations or we hadn't done those kind of investigations in Australia um, before then. It was a big ask of the police and let's just say that some of them were more ready to consider it than others. So that's probably the best way of putting that. Mm.
0: Uh, You've talked a couple of times about making that transition from... Well, not a transition from journalist to advocate, but the but journalism as, uh, as advocate. Were there times when you felt... A bit uncomfortable, or did you, or do you always feel? Look, this is the kind of story where I am comfortable about that role. When
1: look, I was, I was never comfortable with it, um, because, and, and to try and explain the advocacy part of it, um, the holes in this area um, were were myriad. Um, the the police holes. The secrecy of this issue, there have there, been an extraordinary number of civil settlements, uh, an extraordinary number of cases where people have gone to institutions and have received compensation, but secrecy was the underlying point. Um, the advocacy part that I got into was to try and um, bring, bring that out, to get lawyers to give me information so that we could start trying to specify how big this issue was. Um, t- from 2012, once it was obvious that we needed a Royal Commission, the advocacy came in, in terms of trying to get politicians to engage on the issue. And politicians, I can tell you, in a, there's one politician I give credit to, and that's David Shoebridge, who in, in New South Wales, who was a, a champion On this issue. But I can tell you now, he's one of the very, very few. Certainly, there were some in in Victoria. But there was a point where politicians needed to become engaged and they just did not want it. Um, And that's at the federal and the state level. Um, That's probably where the advocacy came in the, the strongest, where I was trying to organise meetings with politicians to say, look, this isn't just some media campaign we're going to get bored with after two weeks. We're serious here. And um, as late as August 2012, uh, when she was in Newcastle, uh, Julia Gillard, when she was asked point blank do you support a Royal Commission, Um, she just said no. Um, And for various reasons by the November she agreed to do one. I can tell you now there's a lot of state politicians um, who did not
0: want to engage on the issue at all. As an issue, I mean, I guess you didn't wake up in 2006 and say, Great, I'm going to spend the next 10 years of my life dealing with child sex abuse. <laughs> I can't think of nothing more fun yeah. than that. Was the Royal Commission a bit of a breakthrough, though, for you to think, Oh, right, OK, that's now at a stage where I can step back from this a bit?
1: It was, and uh, I, I felt extraordinary relief. I mean, when the royal commission was announced, and I wrote about this, I just cried, I sobbed, because suddenly there was this enormous weight off my shoulders that I didn't even realise how heavy it was, um, and it was simply, I think, once, and and, and I've, I've thought about it afterwards. What was that about? People's lives depended on, or well, not people's lives, but but people were committing suicide even as the campaign was on. On the second morning of the Special Commission of Inquiry in in 2013, so this is back in May last year, I received an email from a woman where her relative had committed suicide. And um, so I think it was that issue. There was so much death in this issue that I wasn't expecting. And um, the only time I've ever felt actually scared writing about this, and scared's the right word to use, was when I had to write an article about a man who was missing, his name was John Perona, in July 2012, a victim of John Denham, the pedophile priest, where there'd already been so many suicides, and virtually every victim I'd had any dealings with of John Denham had attempted suicide, some of them numerous times. I was terrified in writing that story and having John's face on the the front of the newspaper saying that basically he's committed suicide. I was terrified about other suicides. And um, those are the kind of issues, I think, that when people think about the media, investigative journalism, those kind of issues don't come into it. As a journalist, having to think about the impact of what you're writing about on your families, having to think about, it's okay, I've signed up for this job, but did my relatives? No, they didn't. And, and so those are the kinds of things, I think, that um, people don't think about when they think about journalists and investigative... And it's like, oh, the Walkleys and how exciting and everything. But, but it's always taken its toll. And, and I think, you know, Sarah and, and sure, we would sure. both say that, yeah.
2: The
0: uh, final, final question I want to ask you before we move to questions from the audience is <clears throat> how important was it for you and in breaking this story, to have the support of your newspaper, and to have a serious newspaper behind you?
1: Um, extraordinarily important. Um, and I've acknowledged in the past, through, through this I've had three separate editors, uh, Rod Quinn, Roger Brock and Chad Watson, and um, I've had the 100% support of those three people, two general managers, Julie Ainsworth and Jason King, um, I've had... It it has been vital because you're the journalist who writes this material, but in the end, you're not the one who makes a decision about whether it's going to run or not. It's it's the editor. You're not the one who has to sign off when you've got the defamation actions against you. It's the editor. You're not the one who is committing to the resources. It's the editor. Um, On this issue, because it went for so long, um, I had the support of the whole organisation because... Everybody knew that it it was much bigger than just a journalist and, and, uh, yeah, so it's never down to just one journalist.
0: Uh, And Trevor, could you have done your story not being at the ABC or was being at the ABC or having not just necessarily the ABC but an organisation of that size and courage?
2: In many ways it might have been easier to do in print actually because uh, it was a struggle getting together (coughs) 25 minutes of television but... um, I don't think there were too many people further up the line at the ABC who didn't see the story for what it was, not that they knew about it until it went to air, but, it, it, you know, <laughs> they, they acknowledged that this was a cracking story and, you know, that, that benefits everyone, I guess. Um, but there was no, you know, gnashing of teeth uh, over whether this wasn't a question of public interest. Clearly it was because it affected the sovereignty of this country to think that... Um, An overseas intelligence agency should be encouraging people to uh, forge passports and uh, spy for an overseas intelligence agency. But um, arguably... Well, I don't think there is an argument, actually. I think the revelations did not in any way compromise the security of Israel. Uh, This was not about uh, national security. This was about national embarrassment for Israel, uh, because he was a guy who was a hopeless spy. And it reflected badly in Mossad's recruitment, uh, but it certainly didn't compromise national security, even though they would um, try and move against you because they could argue it it did.
0: You you copped a bit of criticism for that, or the programme in the ABC copped a bit of criticism for that, didn't they? Um, We we
2: did. It was interesting. I think the Jewish community in Melbourne, it was such a shock, and there were many layers of complexity to it. uh, They felt affronted, I think, that uh, anyone should doubt... Uh, their commitment, their allegiance to Australia, uh, even though Israelis and uh, well, Jewish Australians, you know, have a unique opportunity. They can, you know, leave this country, uh, move to Israel, become a citizen of Israel, and, um, you know, not too long after the firing tank shells into Gaza. So I think, I think it kind of... It, uh, it really highlighted all of those issues... But I think it was pretty, pretty hard for most, most people to comp- comprehend anyway.
0: Is this because it was one of those stories of kind of everyone in the community knew a bit about a one level or knew something, knew about the engagement of Mossad in recruiting people or knew about the engagement with Israel? Or I,
2: I think so. And I, after the story went to where I went back to Israel and I was talking to a, a former Mossad guy, and he said, um, you know, you shouldn't, have, you shouldn't have told that story. So he said, you know, you've got a family here, you've got kids... I'm not sure how he knew I had kids, but but I, I kind of saw that as a threat. But then when he spoke further, I was re- I realised that what he was saying is that you were being disloyal in shaming Mossad, this uh, institution that we hold with such high regard. And I said, well, look, I'm not Israeli uh, and I'm not even Jewish. I don't really sense any obligation to uphold the, um, you know, fine reputation of, of, of Mossad. But he was saying, oh, but being Australia, we're together on the, the war against terror, and, you know, we're such great, great allies. Um, but, you know, the way I see it, I, I don't mind revealing state secrets, even domestic ones, um, but it didn't imperil anyone, really. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and, uh, Sarah, one of the last, the last question I wanted to ask you is actually not about your investigative stories, but now you're, you've moved on to, I guess, from investigation to evisceration. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> What's that, What uh, shifts that been like? Has that been fun? Is it more fun or less fun or different?
3: Being an investigative journalist is so much fun. It, it isn't possible to imagine anything, although it's sometimes hard and it is a little bit uh, dangerous at times and it has its uh, really dark moments, but it is, in the end, an extraordinarily rewarding and exciting and interesting thing to do. It's hard to imagine anything being more fun, but I am having... A very good time at the moment Um, (laughs) but for a very simple reason that and somebody said this to me just before I started doing 730 which is just remember what you love to do when you make stories is to go for the truth and you want to bring the audience with you that's all being a journalist at four corners is about this is exactly the same thing and I hadn't understood it and it was such a lovely blinding moment of of course We all want the same thing. We all struggle to get this, which is a straight answer to a simple question. (laughs) That's all we have to do. And and in that sense, it's quite, you know, you equip yourself as best you can. But that reminded me that this isn't a complex proposition. Whatever the truth is, and that's a debatable point at all times and should be, and it's complex and subjective, but we want a straight answer to a straight question. So let's have it. (laughs)
0: Okay. Well, uh, anyone got any straight questions they want to ask for uh, any or all members of the panel? Yes, over the back <clears> here.
1: <throat> I've got a question for Sarah. How do you manage to find out things that the AFP can't? <laughs>
3: it's just it, a small team. It's one of the difficulties the AFP faces is that they have, of course, they have informers. But that that is a complicated relationship in itself, and a lot of people who have experienced, have come here through people smugglers, know about people smugglers, they're suspicious still of governments. They have that profound mistrust and fear of how a police force in particular operates. But in the end, it does come back to something which is understanding who they are very well, and I'll say something, I don't want to criticise the AFP particularly, but there is an issue here understanding who those people are and getting them to trust you in exactly the same way that Joanne is talking about in relation to the victims that she came into contact with. If you understand people, you can get them to trust you and tell you things. There is an issue with police versus intelligence organisations, which is quite interesting, which Trevor will be acutely aware of, which is that um, police tend to get informers and eventually they burn them. And in, their, in the back of their minds, although they can deal with them well, and very skilled policemen obviously deal with informers very well, but there is a sense at the end of the day that informers are going to be people who will be burned in a very different way. Intelligence organizations recruit and hold people and expect to stay with them for the long term. And that's what we do. So when we get a source, that's someone, I've got sources I've had now for like Trevor, for years and years and years, and you continue to have a relationship with them protect them and defend them and stand up for them forever, no matter what it costs, and it, sometimes it does come at a very considerable personal cost and that's the commitment, that's how you do it. Over here. Oh, thank you. Could we have a story place on the IPA? <laughs> I think uh, you should send that request to the ABC. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, yes, behind them.
1: Um, this is a question for all of you, um, Joanne mentioned that sometimes the hardest thing is getting people to suspend their disbelief, and I suppose those disbeliefs come from the fact that we're all embedded in a certain worldview, um, which is conditioned largely through the through media, um, and I suppose the irony is that you guys are part of the media, um, but you're having to fight against this kind of worldview, which is itself created by the media, uh, to a large extent. So I just wondered, um, in fighting that kind of conspiracy theory stigma, um, what, what what's your view on how hard that is to, to have that stigma come from your colleagues, um, even if they're in very different parts of, of the media? I'm happy to answer that first, if you like. I, I get what you're saying. I, I think it's interesting that... And I think it was essential, actually, that I'm a regional journalist on this particular issue. And so it wasn't this massive national thing. It was a a smaller thing. I also don't work in, in an office, and I work from home. And I think that's been a rather important part of it as well. So I'm not having discussions with other journalists by and large. I'm not saying that works on all situations, because clearly it doesn't, but I think on, on an issue where secrecy... Um, it was an essential part of it that I had to think for myself, and I had to make decisions on my own, and um, if I'd been part of a bigger group... Because on the issue of child sexual abuse, just to try and make it a little bit clearer, From a media point of view, child sexual abuse, particularly historic child sexual abuse, is really difficult to report. Because by and large, the people don't want to be identified. Now, that immediately is an issue if you are trying to get the public to relate to an issue. Because if you can't, if you just have an unidentified woman, then immediately people aren't engaging because it's like, well, I can't see a face. That was one big obstacle. Um, So, yeah, there's lots and lots of issues uh, on that, and I'm probably panning out there. It might be better if somebody else takes over now.
0: (laughs) Well, I guess another example is, did you ever find it hard to believe or convince people that, oh, this is just a one-off case, it's not emblematic of anything greater than that? Is that
2: the...? I I think so, and we now hear that uh, there's a a prisoner Y there who's also a a Mossad agent of um, European background, but I I think really you've just got to enter something with no preconceptions whatsoever. It's all kind of evidence-based, really, and um, when you're dealing with intelligence agencies and things that happen to people, rumours abound and you know, in trying to uh, establish a profile of Benzigia, he is a myriad of, of contradictions, you know. He's this, but he's that. Um, you've just got to be, I think, quite diligent uh, in, you know, coming to your own conclusions about, about things that are just surrounded by a lot of mud.
0: And you must have examples, maybe, very muddy might have comments where you start investing in a story and it actually turns out there is no story there.
3: Yes, it doesn't, it, it, we try not to let it happen too much because, as I said, the burden of a 45 minute television programme is that the making of it is substantial, so you can't, turning the ship around is a very big deal. But what, what the others are saying there is almost the most important thing of all, which is when you start a story, you don't go in thinking, I know what this story is. And even once you've been a journalist for a long time, it gets actually harder to, in some ways to do that because you've seen patterns before, you've seen cover ups before, you know how they work. And it can be very easy to take a lot of information and make it fit a a preconceived idea of what this particular story is. So keeping your mind really held open with clamps really to make sure that you're not assuming that this 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 set of information, this set of facts equals a particular thing until you're absolutely sure that it does. But that group thing you're, you're talking about there too, is, it, that's another, it is a real danger. Mm-hmm. And being inside an organisation where there is a particular view about a particular thing, you do have to be careful to, to remind yourselves at all times that the group doesn't count. It is only about the story and the truth of that particular story.
0: Mm-hmm. I think there was another question uh, in this back corner here somewhere.
1: Thank you. so good to hear you your stories.
3: Uh, I just wanted to ask Sarah, since she's been at the 7.30 before, what's been your most favourite interview? Oh. favourite? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did enjoy the budget coverage. <laughs> but just for the reasons I'm talking about before, which is understanding how those things, just like these big social issues that we're talking about, that they're all part of the same thing. It's really about finding where the truth is in any particular thing. The least favourite interviews are those people who just will not answer the question. And it's, it won't do. You know, that, and there are people who are skilled at it, there are people who engage, and then there are people who don't engage. To his enormous credit, the Treasurer is someone who engages. So you, he may not want to answer the question that we want to ask, but he will make some attempt to come to the question it's those people in the political sphere who, no matter what happens, will not answer the question. And I think we all have to rise up against them. Question. No names, no patrol, or did you notice? A question at the end. Here.
0: This will have to be our last question.
2: To all the panels, I like can, how do you respond to the smear campaigns you've all had against you and your messages uh, by the vested interests?
1: Um, facts. And, um, and you, part of this job, if you're trying to change people's views about institutions and important, as we all are, then you're going to cop criticism, and that's part of the deal. Um, you have to have a strong sense of self. You have to have a really strong belief in, um, our job here is to get the truth out, and, um, you have to have a good editor, or a good, good organisation backing
3: you. And um, yeah, Uh, there's a few stories I've done where I've had members of my team, you know, effectively have miniature nervous breakdowns at the end of it because that period after a very big story can be can be intense, and it it, it does require you you do learn it, but it does require fortitude that when those smears or attacks. They gather momentum, that's, that's the issue, that one or two is fine, it's when it's very personal, very directed, and they go on and on. And then, for me, the worst moment is not the attacks on myself, but when they start attacking the people who have spoken out. You really have to hang tough there, and some people find that utterly unbearable. They become very invested in the, in the sources and how brave they are, and they can't actually dare to see them being torn down. And I've had particularly in early stories about Rugby League, for example, some of the people involved in reporting we did on misuse of abuse of women in Rugby League. <clears throat> the attacks on the sources in that story was one of the hardest things I've ever
2: had to manage. Time. Uh, a smear from a whole government doesn't concern me because you get plenty of people defending you. But it's kind of interesting. It, it gets down to uh, governments and institutions' attempts to, to manage information. And it's interesting in Israel now, apparently the Mossad have kind of like a public relations person, and what happens if they get wind that you're working on a story, they'll approach you and they'll say, look, we'll tell you the whole story if you promise not to publish. (laughs) (laughs) uh, It's it's kind of bizarre, because I wouldn't really want to know the whole story if I can't publish, but it it actually, it it, uh, is quite successful. Shin Bet, the um, Domestic Security and Service, they have much the same thing, and they basically appeal uh, to one's sense of loyalty to the country. And, you know, when it comes to a journalist in Israel, it kind of works because they've all served in the army. Many have served in the intelligence services. It gives them good skills to become a journalist later in life. Uh, so they can appeal to a sense of loyalty and often uh, a lid is kept on those very sensitive uh, stories. Uh,
0: we'll have to wrap it up there. Will you please thank uh, Sarah for If if you are interested in stories, make sure you save the dates for the Walkley Storyology Summit happening here in Sydney this year from December 1st to the 4th. So thank you all very much, and I hope you've enjoyed yourselves.
2: Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook for new episode updates to be the first to know about upcoming Walkley events and news.